instead of running an experiment and seeing what it shows, like true sciences, these people like I said, are building experiments, trying to prove their point of view. And that's not science, that's manipulation. All right, welcome back everybody to episode 13 of the Building Lifelong Athletes podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Renicky. Thanks so much for dropping in, I really appreciate it. I know you can be anywhere and listen to anybody, so the fact that you're here really means the world to me. And today we're gonna to talk about an incredibly important topic, which is scientific research and how it works. I know maybe not the most glamorous or exciting, but it's super, super important. Over the past few years, the general population's view on medical research and authority has pretty much been eroded super quickly. And I wanted to take some time to kind of explain how the whole scientific process works, how it can be manipulated, and why good science is still so important today. In fact, you've probably been confused on why scientific consensus seems to change every so often, and maybe it feels like it's impossible to know anything at all, actually. But I'm here to help you get a better understanding on how to think about science and research and how you can use these skills to help yourself be less confused on all the noise you hear in the world today. So let's get started. First, let's talk about the scientific process in general. If you go back to elementary school or middle school, we all did experiments, right? We had an idea, we got super excited, we tested it, and we looked at the data. Essentially, we still have that same process today. It's obviously much more advanced and we use some fancy tools, but it's still the same principles and all the same logic still applies. What we do here is we kind of think of an idea. We think about either a clinical question from like the medicine side of things, or maybe a laboratory idea or question we have. We draw up a design and experiment what we're gonna do. We test it and we look at the data. It's really as simple as that. Then once you have information, you're supposed to publish your data into peer-reviewed journals. Peer-reviewed means essentially people who are familiar with your field and knowledge, they kind of look at your study before publishing it to identify any huge issues. There's lots and lots of issues with peer review and with academic publishing, and that's a whole nother podcast that maybe we can talk about one day. There's lots of issues, but theoretically, it's our way of kind of helping prevent anything from getting out there. It means that, hey, someone's gone through the process, the scientific process of understanding, having a question, designing an experiment, and running the experiment. And so it's kind of helped this safeguard to make sure that just not anything gets in the academic literature, but that's essentially what it is. It's kind of like a safeguard there. And so ideally, ideally when we do this, we kind of hold our ideas loosely, meaning, Hey, I'm not quite sure what's going to happen. We'll see what the data shows me. And then we'll kind of change our opinion based on that. Unfortunately today, that isn't the case all the time. Obviously there's tons and tons of amazing scientists out there doing incredible research and I have just you know, changing the world with what they do. But a lot of times we're having a lot of issues. We have f people who kind of hold on to ideas, you know, and they're essentially building experiments, trying to prove their own point of view. Instead of running an experiment and seeing what it shows, like true sciences, these people like I said, are building experiments, trying to prove their point of view. And that's not science, that's manipulation. And that's a huge issue that we, you know, need to look out for in the scientific literature is that, you know, if you're whole career is built on one specific thing or one idea and you need to prove it, then that's a huge conflict of interest. So ideally, ideally what we want to do is kind of go at things with an open mind saying, Hey, let's see what the data shows. And then kind of let us drive, you know, where we go from there. And so I think that's one big issue. And then I want to dive a little bit deeper into some issues we see with our culture and why it's so challenging sometimes to talk about science and the culture. And so here we're going to talk about a couple of things. The biggest thing I see in the culture isn't necessarily bad research, but rather a lack of nuance. What I mean by that is in today's world, black and white does not get clicks. It's as simple as that. If you just scroll through YouTube or anywhere, you know, people are trying to get your attention. They're saying, don't do this, or this is going to die, make you die, or this is going to kill you. And so it's like fear and black and white. That's the, the easiest way to get people's attention. You know, our attention spans are shorter than ever it appears like. So nuanced takes aren't exactly interesting. And sometimes they're a lot more time consuming. Like I said, if someone can just get an answer to something right away and feel like they got an answer as opposed to hearing a 
10, 15 minute back and forth understanding the nuances of it, it's a lot easier just to consume that super black and white piece of content and move on with your life. And so that's super challenging for us to kind of, how do we communicate science in a nuanced way, but that's also easy to digest. It's very challenging. Like I said, it's just so much easier to say something is black and white, get some attention, and then odds are no one's gonna fact check you anyways. Obviously, you know, you wanna have people in your corner who are looking after you and making sure you're posting the right things. But at the end of the day, if you post something, the vast, vast majority of people are gonna look at that and say, huh, interesting and scroll the next thing. And you're gonna think that, you know, I saw this, it's from someone who's maybe reputable, that has to be true. Like once again, that's why it's interesting, at least in the scientific literature, that we should theoretically have people checking that to make sure that, hey, like you can't just put something egregiously terrible in here and they're gonna call you out on that. But like I said, that can happen all the time today in our pop culture and pop science is kind of as we call it. People can post things, post whatever they want, and then, you know, it's there and it's taken as fact. And additionally, it seems we've lost our ability for civil discourse on complex ideas. And we only really want clean and neat ideas. Like I said, it's really tricky, but you know, there's a huge benefit from having differing opinions and then being able to kind of talk about it, have civil discourse about that and understand, well, I don't agree with you here and this is why, and I don't agree with you here and this is why, but today it just seems we have this huge divide where you know, people's ideology is essentially their religion, where it's like, I can't be wrong in this. And that's a really challenging thing to do. So. Unfortunately, though, science is not neat and clean. Usually it's really muddy. And in fact, science is always changing. And so when scientific bodies change their recommendations, that's actually a good thing. That means that they're changing their opinion based on new information. What we don't want is someone who's stagnant and just says, I'm gonna do this forever, and anything that doesn't fit into what I want isn't good, isn't good science. That's not good science. We wanna have an opinion, and you know, we can have strong convictions that can be loosely held though. So essentially, I have these strong convictions, but they're loosely held, meaning I feel like this is right, I think this is right, based on what I see in literature, but you can convince me another way to, to learn something new if the data shows something separate. And that's what we really wanna to go for. But however, that can look super bad to the public, like we saw in COVID, with things changing left and right, left and right, that's science. Science is, hey, this is what we think. And we're gonna talk about like the different levels of evidence and why this might happen. But science is saying, hey, this is what I think is going on. And as we learn data and new information, we're gonna go over here and say, actually, this is going on. And it looks like we're, you know, quote unquote, flip-flopping ideas, but really that's just kind of going where the science is pointing us. And that's actually good science. The next social issue that I see is essentially the death of expertise and the rise of a platform for everybody. Now, overall, I think the hierarchical nature of medicine in the past has definitely left a lot of people without answers and people have felt left out. So overall, the empowering of people with online platforms is, I think, a very good thing. I learn from so many different people in so many different fields. So this is not me saying that we can't learn from others who aren't quote unquote experts in a specific field. That's not the case at all. That being said, I definitely think there is something for formal training and expertise can't just be replaced on the internet. You can't replace residency, you know, doing three to seven years of residency for a medical doctor. You can't replace getting your PhD, spending all those years in the lab or doing research. You can't replace clinical experience working with patients. You can't replace working with clients in the gym. You know, none of that can be replaced. Theory and book knowledge, they're also obviously critically important for this, but the implementation of what we do from the book to the actual, you know, area of expertise that we're working in, that's more important than anything. And so, it just goes to show also though that someone doesn't have to have credentials, you know, to make them correct either. You know, obviously we see it all the time online that people, you know, have these credentials and they're incorrect. And in fact, I guarantee you there are plenty of things that I'm misinformed about. Guarantee it. I hope that you call me out on it. If you see it, send me a message, let me know, that'd be great. Um, but you know, it's really challenging because we have people who are supposed to be trusted, we can't trust. Well, people who we shouldn't trust are trusting. So it's like, ah, oh, you're so confused saying, well, like, if I can't trust anybody, what do I do? Well, here's one thing to start off. Find multiple sources. You know, I say, if you can't trust 
feel like you can't trust anybody, find multiple sources. If someone is saying something way out of left field, like essentially you're hearing this and you're like, well, this is the first time I've heard this. This is way out of there. I don't get it. Talk and research with the people around you and people you trust to see if you're missing something. Maybe it is something new. Maybe it's something new and groundbreaking and we're onto something, or it's something that's completely fringe and not supported by any evidence. You know, I think also it's really, really helpful to listen to differing viewpoints. Don't get sucked down an algorithm that they're going to feed you exactly what you want to hear. It's known, it's tried and true. We know that if you live on social media, it's an echo chamber and it's just going to kind of continue to find things that, you know, not only incite fear and, you know, controversy and all that stuff, but they're going to kind of give you the positions that you are tunneling into already. And it kind of just goes down and down this rabbit hole. And so it's really important to seek out opposing views on things. You know, we can listen to them, see if you're wrong. I mean, that's at the end of the day, that's a good thing. If you listen and say, I don't necessarily agree with that. And that's okay too. But you know, having that different viewpoint is really helpful. So essentially I'd love for you to be able to prove to yourself why you hold the stance that you do. And obviously this is super challenging for me as well. I, I think I do it all the time in medicine. We've learned lots and lots of things, you know, the way we used to do it. And then people ask me, or, you know, my learners will ask me, well, why do we do this? I have to sit there and think, oh shoot, like, why do I do it this way? It's the way I've done it, but it's super humbling to get called out and say, hey, why do you do the way you do? So prove to yourself why you hold the stance you do. And so that's enough of me kind of ranting about science, but it's just super passionate uh, for me. And so we're gonna move on to the kind of different types of research we're gonna talk about. So how we kind of do studies and what we look at. So if we think about research, it kind of has a pyramid, you know, base the big base at the bottom, a pyramid on top with different types of research, you know, categorizing them in some big groups, we kind of have either observational or interventional or perspective and retrospective. So we'll talk about that here. Observational, essentially, we're just watching and looking at trends and seeing what, what kind of happens. You know, observation, we're just kind of sitting back and observing. That's what we do versus an interventional. This is where we directly manipulate something to see what happens. And so observational, we're just kind of hanging back, see what happens. Intervention, we are going in there, doing an experiment, changing something to see how that affects our outcome. And from a time perspective, we also have retrospective and prospective studies. Retrospective is like I said, we're looking back in retrospect. We're looking backwards after something's already happened. Whereas prospective, we're looking forward to something happens. Ideally, our best studies are typically interventional and with a prospective approach, which means, you know, we're changing something, we're doing an experiment and looking, you know, what happens as we go forward. That's typically a higher level of evidence. So at the end of the day, we're kind of walking back here. We can start with what we get. So we start at the bottom of the pyramid. This is usually our least strong Levels of evidence in the top of the pyramid is the best. And like I mentioned, bottom is usually observational and not truly interventional. First, we'll start like on the bottom most rung of the pyramid. It's expert opinion and case reports. So expert opinion, what is that you might ask? Expert opinion is essentially a bunch of people get around in a room and say, yeah, I think this is what we do. I think this is right. It's pretty much people telling us what to do with no real science behind it. A lot of times, a great example of this is lots and lots of things in pregnancy. You know, a lot of times this is expert opinion because I don't see a lot of pregnant parents saying, uh, yeah, you can just uh, experiment on me or my child. That's totally fine. I'll just take whatever medication. It's just really challenging to do. Ethically, it's almost impossible to do, but nobody's signed up to volunteer for that. So a lot of times we have expert opinion saying, hey, I think this makes reasonable sense based off of maybe some other data we've extrapolated over to. So it's not super great data. It's not our highest level of evidence, but it's sometimes all we have in, in certain situations. The next kind of in this additional rung as well as case reports and case reports are essentially telling us about a weird case. You're not really investigating higher while, you know, why it happened, just what's going on. You know, since you're in clinic and you see something, you say, oh, that's, that's kind of weird. You write up a case report. You kind of say the background of it, what's been going on, you know, what happened, how you treated it, you know, what the outcome was. And you kind of publish that just so it kind of gets on the radar of other people saying, hey, this is what's going on. But once again, no intervention here, just observational and kind of saying, hey, this is what we saw. 
The next rung up here, we're gonna look at case control studies. So once again, this is still observational, so this is not um, interventional at all, and it's retrospective. And what a case control study does is it compares patients who have a disease that we know about uh, or a disease that we're interested in compared to those who do not have the disease or outcome. Essentially what we do is we're looking back retrospectively. So we know these people have some sort of disease or outcome we're looking for. We then go backwards, look back retrospectively to see how some sort of exposure affects these people. So I'll give you kind of an example, a crude one. Let's say we know one group has had some abnormal development as children, you know, then we then find a, another group that's very similar, except they don't have any of that abnormal development. So they're kind of developing normally. Then we look back on them retrospectively to see what unique or abnormal development characteristics they had as a group. You know, maybe we found that they were all exposed to lead. Maybe they were exposed to power lines. Who knows what it is, but you're kind of looking to see, hey, is there something in this group that has the desired you know, thing we're looking at? Is there something that makes them different from other groups? So we're looking back on there to see, hey, was there a difference that caused this known outcome here? Can be super helpful for finding associations with rare conditions. So essentially, if there's like only a handful of case reports, you can like go on back and see, hey, was there something they all had in common? But it's super difficult to eliminate tons of confounders. It, you know, it relies on people's recall saying, oh, yeah, I think I had this or that. And so it's not the best. And so overall, we're just looking back to see, you know, what may have been associated with something. And so it's not the highest level of evidence, but it can be a good start. Next, we're going to talk about cohort studies. So cohort studies here is where one or more samples or cohorts are followed prospectively, so moving forward. And then you compare the participants who had something different in them to see if that led to any changes down the line. So that's a pretty confusing, confusing way. Let me kind of give you an example. So let's say we want to see if exposure to x-ray radiation leads to cancer. So what we do is we'd get a similar group of people with, in terms of respect to age, sex, socioeconomic status. And so we have one group who was exposed to x-rays, the other one who didn't. And we kind of compare them and see, looking at down the line, do we see any significant changes in those cancer rates? So we're kind of looking at two different groups to start and then prospectively looking at the outcome as opposed to before where we looked backwards. So once again, we know the desired you know change we're having here, whether it's x-ray or high blood pressure, whatever, we know there's a difference between the group, we know what the difference is, and then we follow them to see if that matters. You know, we can match the cohorts a little better here, which helps with co-founding, so we can kind of get them there, but there's no true randomization because obviously we have to look and see if people have this risk factor. Um, it's a little better because we're looking prospectively, but once again, still not truly, truly interventional. Next, we move up a little higher on the rung of evidence to randomized controlled trials. And this is where we start to get to the point where we feel, ah, we feel pretty confident when we see these trials where this is a lot higher quality evidence. So this is truly experimental. Like we talked about, we are going to do something. We are going to change something and see what happens. And essentially what happens in a randomized controlled trial is essentially randomization is a way of obviously just making sure things aren't done in a systematic way in terms of there's going to be no biases. So participants are randomly signed into either an experimental group or a control group. So essentially what one group's going to get the thing we're looking at, like in terms of the change we make and the other one does not get that. And essentially what we're doing, they randomize, like I said, we're going to randomize these two groups. So hopefully they are like pretty much the same. We're going to have a huge list of people and they're going to kind of a computer algorithm will shoot up the differences saying, Hey, all these people go on this side and all these people go on the other. And you know, the only thing that's going to change hopefully between them is one group gets the you know intervention, the other one doesn't. So they should hopefully be very, very similar. And that gives us a lot of, of lot of power and a lot of confidence in this saying that, Hey, these people were very similar. And you know, the outcomes we see later are probably due to this intervention because they're so similar. Otherwise, you know, obviously this is like one of our gold standard ones. This is awesome, but it's super uh, time consuming and takes a lot of money. So that's why we can't do it for everything. If we could do it for everything, that'd be awesome, but it's just not practical. And so moving up even 
on top of that, we start to have systematic reviews and meta-analyses. So a systematic review is essentially a document written by a panel of people after doing a comprehensive and systematic, hence the name, review of all the relevant literature for a topic. So essentially what they do is they just sift through like thousands and thousands of papers or hundreds of papers, whatnot, to make sure they look at every single paper that is related to a specific subject. So not just the first page of PubMed. And they kind of go through, there's systematic ways, there's different ways of looking at it, but the systematic ways of making sure you're looking at each one, fits the criteria, you're looking at how biased are these papers, and it's a really, really cool way to kind of aggregate all these papers and say, hey, this is what we found. And this is like the general trend in the data. And then a subset of systematic reviews is what we call meta-analysis. And this is essentially where pertinent data from several different studies are combined together to kind of draw a single conclusion. And so if you had, you know, 20 different studies, you pull those numbers and you can put them together, like physically and run all the numbers together, it should hopefully give us more confidence in those numbers. And like I said, these are both the top line evidence. They can help summarize an entire field, but can be super difficult to, you know, it takes a lot of time and to combine the papers. If you have different papers that are looking at general, you know, concepts in the same field but not identical outcomes it can be really challenging to put their pieces together and so that can be that can be challenging at the end of the day though this is why i just want to let you know like observational studies aren't as strong as interventional studies or systematic reviews or meta-analyses because that kind of takes a little more time and it takes in consideration a wider breadth of information and so i just wanted to, to, to rehash here saying like observational studies are very good very important for us but not quite our gold standard um, whereas the interventional randomized controlled trials and meta-analyses and systematic uh, systematic reviews are kind of more towards that side but that being said this is my caveat no study is ever perfect even systematic reviews and meta-analyses can have lots of flaws or can be wildly discordant from one another and that's challenging too and it's also important to remember that if you have garbage in you're gonna get garbage out that's kind of a saying we say in science so let's say you had you know some really shoddy numbers that are, are super different from one another and then you have that across six different papers and you try to have a meta-analysis of them all well if there are lots of bad numbers to begin with or bad input you're gonna have bad output and so it's obviously challenging to to know and to, to look at but generally that's those are things that we look about and think about and so we've kind of learned about all these different topics of different studies. Well, now I kind of want to talk about how some ideas can be manipulated to make things look a little more appealing, maybe not just to kind of give you a, to perk your ears up. So the next time you're listening to someone say, oh, like this, this study showed this, just be like, oh, what did that talk about? So first of all, I think it's important to say no single study should drastically change your opinion. Obviously there are practice changing pieces of literature that come out all the time. Like I'll see something and be like, oh, well, that's really interesting. And then you'll kind of see and take a look and it can kind of help guide you in a little bit there. But there's never been anything that I've seen that's like has drastically changed everything I've ever done. It's always little shifts there. Maybe it's this, hey, I think this is what's going on. And it starts to guide me in that direction. And then I get another piece of corroborating evidence and I go further that way. And so we shouldn't be having these drastic swings from one side to the other based on the data. It should be little by little. And at the end of the day, we have to look at the totality of the evidence to help inform our view, not just one single piece. And so that's why something we see today, see people you know, comment and say, hey, look at this study. This changes everything. And in reality, well, where does that study fit in the grand scheme of things? That's really important to me. That's like what I'm generally looking for. And so it's super easy to get distracted on the corner of the internet if someone says like, look at this study, this shows that, but then you might not know the entire body of evidence. And so it's really challenging, but just wanna let you know, anytime you hear about one specific study, I want you to say, okay, that's cool. And then just kind of almost ignore it and then see if it fits with everything else. But um, that being said, people are taking the data sometimes we've seen today and they're they're going, you know, taking, turn up to 11 as they say in Spinal Tap. They're saying, seeing some sort of outcome and they are just like, exaggerating like crazy. And this is a super big pet peeve of mine. I'll take some mild result and then blow it out of proportion for headlines. 
and science is usually subtle, you know, it's, it's subtle and nuanced, usually not black and white. And so it's not as sexy or it doesn't create headlines, but so people will do this to get clicks and I get it. It's how advertisers pay the money and I understand that. Um, but it's just something to be careful of. One thing specifically I want to mention is when people say, you know, this study in Petri dish or this study in rats, it showed X, Y, and Z. And then from that, they say, because of this, you should do that, man. That, that cannot tell you almost anything. You know, we say that to apply the science, it has to be done in the population we're looking at. So specifically, if we're looking at the outcome for, you know, a blood pressure medication, we'll just say, and we see that it maybe lowers some blood pressure in rats. Okay, that's a cool start, but I'm not going to change how I practice as a physician or what I'm taking as a human being based off of rat studies. And all the time we see people say, oh, like we saw this Petri dish thing where this happened, the human liver cells were exposed to this in Petri dish and XYZ happened. So therefore you should do this, man, that is just taking like 12 leaps forward. I mean, we are just trying to sprint before even crawling. So for me, when I look at things like that, I say, okay, that's a cool mechanism. That's sweet. Are there any like studies in actual humans? You know, first of all, and if they say, yeah, there are, okay, cool. Are there any studies in humans that show any outcomes that we're looking for? And then if they say the, yeah, to that, then I'm, I'm kind of interested. But if it's just a mechanism that has no actual outcome data, man, you can be chasing your tail all day. You could see this and say, oh, I need to change this and do that. And at the end of the day, we could do maybe these awesome studies and it shows it does nothing, does absolutely nothing in humans, but you spent all this time, you know, chasing you know, a, a lead that leads you nowhere. And so it's just really important to kind of understand that mechanistic studies or studies on rats don't necessarily extrapolate to humans. And that's super important to look at. Additionally, people can also confuse you with stats. Stats and numbers are hard. I get it. I struggle with it too. I'm no way, shape or form like a, a biostatistician. Uh, I'm not an expert at that at all. And so I respect those people tremendously. It is super challenging, but sometimes people will shout out large numbers in a study and they kind of make it look fancy. Like it's more important than it actually is. And I'm going to kind of give you some examples today just to, to show you some really, really common ones that people will do. So you can keep a lookout for it. Today, we're just going to talk about the concepts of relative risk and absolute risk that are just two big ones. An absolute risk is a number, let's say a number of people experiencing an event in relation to the population at risk. So number of people actually having an event in relation to the total population at risk. So I'm going to give you an example here of two different gyms. So gym number one, there's a hundred lifters and 20 of them have back pain. So 20 out of hundred, that's a 20% absolute risk. You know, like I said, we talked about the people experiencing event or back pain, that's 20 out of the entire population hundred. So 20%. And we'll just say for this first example, gym two has the exact same. It's 20 people out of hundred. So 20% absolute risk. There's something then called the relative risk where relative risk is then the comparison between two groups of people or, or the same group at two different times. And talking about here, let's say gym two, we'll, we'll use the example. So gym one, we said it had 20 people out of hundred that were hurt their back for 20%. Now let's say gym two implements some sort of pr proprietary rehab program. And all of a sudden, instead of 20 people with back pain, it's just eight. So that's just an 8% overall absolute risk. So when we compare though, gym one to gym two, the ratio is eight to 20, or that's 40%. So in other words, the relative risk of getting back pain at gym two is about 40% less than, than at gym one. And so that's like relative risk, like I said. So absolute risk would just be the numbers, the 8% of people, eight out of 100, absolute risk. But the relative risk, when we compare one versus the other, it's 40. So it looks like a whole lot higher. And we're gonna go a little bit deeper here and talk about risk reduction. And so let's say that proprietary rehab program in gym two, like we thought that's the reason why we're having less back pain. You know, we think we can use this risk reduction, we can calculate to figure out how much did the risk of back pain change due to this rehab from one gym to the other. So the absolute risk reduction would be the difference in percentages of people affected. So absolute risk reduction would be 20% at gym one, 8% gym two, that's 
So absolute risk reduction is going down 12% from 20 to eight. I know it's a lot of numbers, but stick with me. Just remember 12% is our absolute risk. Whereas our relative risk reduction would be the change in the relative risk. So because the relative risk dropped 40%, remember initially we talked about the relative risk, it dropped 40%. Well, then we'd figure we'd actually calculate by, and then the equation would be hundred percent minus 40. And we find that the absolute risk reduction or the relative risk reduction, I'm sorry, relative risk reduction is 60%. So remember how I said the absolute risk reduction was 12% and the relative risk reduction is now 60%. That is a huge difference. That sounds crazy, right? Like 60%, you're like, oh my gosh. But in reality, only 12 more people were in back pain at gym one versus gym two. It sounds like the end of the world with this, you're like 60%, that is enormous, oh my gosh. Well, that's relative risk compared to absolute risk. And this is something I see all the time in studies. People will constantly talk about relative risk and show these huge, huge numbers, but the absolute risk is very small. Like sometimes we'll see relative risks of like 20, 30, 40%. You're like, oh my gosh, like that's huge. But the absolute risk of actually getting that condition was like 0.2%. You know, went from like 0.2% to 0.3%. Whereas in reality, is that clinically significant? I don't know, but it gets awesome headlines. Once again, this is super nerdy. I'm super sorry that I'm going in on depth on this, but I just want to let you know it's super important that when we're looking at numbers, you just can't take them at face value unless you completely understand what I'm looking at. It's the best way, the most common way I've seen of people exaggerating to get, essentially get clicks. And this is why we have to be vigilant when we look at data because it can be challenging. And so let's just take it back here. Let's take a 10,000 foot view. I know nobody signed up for a math podcast, so I'm super sorry about that. But I just want to articulate my point about that, how it can be used to manipulate you and it can also be used to like scare you or get attention. And so at the end of the day, this is what the question is. How do we know who to listen to, right? I'm not saying, hey, listen to me. Listen to Jordan Renneke. I think that'd be great if you did. I appreciate it. But that being said, I want you to find people who are nuanced, reasonable, and not always spreading the same agenda. If someone is always talking about the same idea with absolutely no gray area or nuance, that's someone I'd be cautious with. You know, it's a common thing that we say in medicine is that if you're a hammer, everything's a nail. If your livelihood depends on a single opinion, you know, whether that be any sort of opinion you have to hold or stance you have to take, and you're going to frame everything you look at, understand, you're going to frame it through that perspective. And you're going to look at things through that lens, and you're not going to be able to step back and look at the bigger picture. So like I said, if someone has their entire you know, identity on this thing, the, the vegan X, the carnivore X, the whatever X, this, I mean, the, the, that person, well, they might be right. I'm not saying they're not right, but what I'm saying is that their entire identity and probably monetary incentive incentive is through that frame. And if something doesn't fit that narrative, well, then it doesn't fit with the marketing they have to do. And like the, the whole picture they've put of themselves. And so just something to think about here. Once again, I'm not saying they're necessarily wrong, but it's just something that if I have to be this way, then that's going to be a challenge. And I'm not sure I can be academically honest. And that's why I kind of, I say, Hey, we'll see, we'll see what shows. I don't want to be held onto something so tightly that I can't be academically honest with myself. Another thing you can do is watch how people act. I'd love for you to watch how they handle challenges. You know, if someone challenges the viewpoint, are they gracious? Are they thoughtful? Or are they dismissive and rude? Maybe the person, if they're dismissive and rude, that person may have, you know, their mind already made up and they're not going to be driven by the data anymore. But it's something I just want you to kind of consider and, and look at that and say, hey, does that person have, you know, some underlying motive that doesn't necessarily fit with what I'm looking for? Obviously, nobody's perfect and science is ever changing, but try to find people who will tell you that they don't know and that they can admit that they're wrong. That's a not a worrisome sign at all. I'm always happy to hear when someone says they're wrong because that means, hey, they're humble and they're gracious enough to say, yeah, I made a mistake and I'm hoping that I can be that and be that person as well. And, and I hope people hold me accountable. But like I said, if, if anybody wants to talk, I'm always happy to answer questions and say, hey, what do you think of this? Obviously, not every person on the internet can talk to and look at and say, hey, this is what I'm going for, but I can hopefully help guide you a little bit. 
So kind of wrapping this all up, I just want to say thanks so much for listening. I know this is a challenging one, um, but at the end of the day, I just want you to remain vigilant and say, hey, um, you can you can do this. You can find people you trust, but once again, corroborate that, look back and do those couple tips we talked about in terms of how to find and how to find someone you can trust. So thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it. If you found this helpful and mean the world, if you like, subscribed or shared it with a friend. And so get off the internet today though, go be active and enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Disclaimer, this podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The topics discussed should not solely be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any condition. The information presented here was created with an evidence-based approach, but please keep in mind that science is always changing, and at the time of listening to this, there may be some new data that makes this information incomplete or inaccurate. Always seek the advice of your personal physician or qualified healthcare provider for questions regarding any medical condition.